If you are able to, please turn in your Bibles to our Old Testament reading, which is going to come out of the book of Leviticus, one of the five books of Moses, also known as the Torah. And if you were to look at the way the Hebrews looked at the scriptures or organized them, it would be in the acronym Tanakh, uh, which is the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. And so um, that is the way they organized their canon of the Old Testament. But for us, it is Leviticus. Leviticus is a wonderful book. Um, it sometimes can be a little boring for people to read because it has the construction of the tabernacle. It has the law being given. It has how priests are to conduct themselves. Um, but it is a wonderful book, and I would encourage all of us to spend time in that book when we get a chance. The other way that I would encourage us is to read the book um, as you are reading Hebrews. Um, do that as a exercise. Read from Hebrews and then go back and read Leviticus because the sacrificial system is clarified and revealed fully in Hebrews. And so, um, hopefully, Lord willing, after we finish um, 1 Corinthians, we hopefully will be going into Hebrews. And so I would encourage you, if you want to read ahead, uh, go ahead on and start reading through Hebrews. Start studying it on your own. But here we are looking at just two verses, and uh, they go this way in chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And we already know that when we see the capital L-O-R-D, that we are talking about the divine name. Um, it is called Hashem by the Hebrews, and they will not pronounce the divine tetragrammaton, the four letters that represent the uh, name of the Lord. We know it as Jehovah or Yahweh. Um, but why is this so important? Well, I would encourage you today or this week, if you get a chance, to read chapter 18 of Leviticus. Because chapter 18 describes what the nations are doing, and it also tells you what God prohibits. And the things that are covered in that chapter um, can be a little bit daunting to look at when you realize that we, as uh, humans, have been sinning for a long time. And have been sinning in the exactly the same way. And so I would encourage you to read uh, that chapter. And it deals with some uh, really grotesque things that were happening culturally and that are happening today. And so, but this idea of being holy carries a lot of nuance and a lot of implications in this original context, the idea is to be dedicated to God as God, the Lord, is dedicated to them. And this dedication is not just an intellectual assent or just a feeling, but rather it is a practice. 
And hear me here, most people feel uncomfortable when we throw the word theology out there or we're studying theology. Um, They think it's heady and they think that it has no place. But hear me here, everybody is a theologian. Everybody has their opinion of what God is and what God does. We are all living out a personal theology, a belief system in some type of higher being or higher thought. We are all theologians. And here the command is, notice God is speaking to Moses, the mediator of that covenant of Sinai, saying, speak to all the congregation, that is, the assembly there, all of those that are there, the gathering, um, and say to them, say to the people of Israel, you shall be holy. This is not an option for us as the people of God. Peter picks up the same idea. You shall be holy. For I the Lord your God, personal, am holy. And so that is where we're headed today, this idea of sanctification. And I want to take a little bit more time in our New Testament reading, which comes from the book of Romans. Paul wrote the book, and it's a letter to the church of Rome. Paul had not visited that church at this point. He had not founded that church, but he is writing to them as an apostle of Christ. And so we are going to be looking at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and following all the way through 31. And I am going to take a little bit more time to walk through this text just because it is a very significant text. It is very important. Two things that I want to, right from the very beginning, say to you. Hear me, please pay attention to this. I am not advocating a works-based salvation. I am not advocating a works-based salvation. What do I mean by that? You cannot earn the grace of God. Okay? But I am not advocating free grace. And what do I mean by that? A grace that requires nothing of you in your life, right? You cannot be a Christian and live like the world. You cannot be a Christian and profess Christ from the mouth out and all your deeds are in line with what the world looks like. Paul takes that away from us. Um, God takes that away from us in Titus when he talks in that uh, first chapter in verse 16, they profess to know God, but by their very lifestyles, they deny God, and they are not good for any good work. There is something that is required of us as Christians, and this idea that you can just make a profession of faith, walk down an aisle, get baptized, and then live your life as you please is wrong. You are deluding yourself. Paul admonishes us in 2 Corinthians to examine yourself to see, to see if you be in Christ. And so I just want to be clear that I am not preaching a works-based salvation today 
but I am preaching a sanctified living. We are to live as saints, as the people of God. And so we're going to walk to this text, and then we'll pick up in Romans chapter 6. So here we go with this text. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, I want to pause there because through faith in Jesus Christ, that particular construction can be understood in two separate ways. And it's being understood more in this way through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And so we are justified through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Remember that what Adam failed in was this obedience. God gave one command to man, and he promptly disobeyed. And because of that one disobedience, sin entered into the world. And because sin entered into the world, death followed sin. And we proliferate in sin. But through one man, Christ Jesus, his faithfulness, his obedience, through him, we are declared to be righteous. This is, this is so important that we understand. For all those who believe and I want to pause there for a second. That also, I, I like it better. It's a participial idea for all of those who are believing. This is a continuous thing. Those who are believing. And believing in the Bible is not divorced from action. When you believe, you act. And the analogy I would give to you guys is if I told you that there was a person in the back giving millions of dollars away, like legit money, and I'm sitting here and I tell you that, none of you guys will turn around. But if I tell you that and start running towards the back, how many of you guys are going to join me? Yeah. We live out what we believe. You want to know what your values are? Look at how you're living your life. You want to know what you prioritize in your life? Look at what you spend your time, your energy, and your money in. Then you will know what the things that matter to you really, really are. And so, moving on a little Further, just walking through this. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all, notice, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. There is none righteous. And if we read previous to these verses, you will see how dire the human condition really is. There is none righteous. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, that that phrase, the glory of God, probably needs to be explained a little bit. Remember that when God made Adam, he made him as what? The image bearer, the imago Dei. And when he rebelled, that image was corrupted. 
and everything associated with that image was corrupted. And we inherited that. We are born into death. We are born into sin. And we, our thinking is corrupted. Our emotions are corrupted. Our reasoning is corrupted. Our actions are corrupted. Part of sanctification is the reclaiming, the reclamation of the image of God. And that goes on through life. And it is hard to be sanctified. It is hard to dedicate yourself to God every single day. As a matter of fact, if we're quite honest, most Christians do not wake up in the morning and say, Lord, I dedicate myself to you today. Everything that I'm doing today, Lord, for your glory. The glory of God. And we beheld the glory of God in Christ, who is the image of perfect humanity. Humanity that lacks nothing and what we are intended to be. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Notice, we are justified by the grace of God. We did not earn it. There is no prevenient grace here. There is no ability to choose God before God chose you, that that doesn't exist. There is no desire in the fallen human being to choose God. And if you think about your life before you were a Christian, you had no desire to choose God. Something happened to you. And it happened to you because God did it. God did something in your life. And you've never been the same. There is no distinction. We're all fallen and are justified by His grace, declared to have a right legal standing before God. In Adam... We all became debtors to God. In Adam, none of us, even if we could keep the Ten Commandments and all the asundry laws associated with the nation of Israel, none of us would be justified and neither would they before God because we still were called sinners in Adam. And we cannot atone for that. The sacrifices of animals could not atone for the sin of Israel, could not atone for them, and could not atone for us. But neither could the sacrifices of humans, if they ever considered that, would do it either. Because what is required from a perfect God is a perfect sacrifice, a blameless atoning sacrifice. And that's the whole sacrificial system is pointing to Christ. This was, and so, to whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, that is the satisfaction of his justice and the cleansing of their sin, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over the righteousness, I mean, over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time 
so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is, uh, this is so, so important. Our God is immutable. Right? What does that mean? He does not change. Our God is holy. And that implies a moral perfection that is beyond us, but it also implies a dedication that is also something that we marvel at because his dedication to us is infinite. It knows no bound. And God cannot compromise on his justice or his holiness. If God compromises on any of his attributes like that, He denies himself, and God cannot deny himself. That is why the redemption of Christ is so important. That is why the incarnation of Christ is so important. That is why the virgin birth is so important. He had to be sinless, and yet he had to be like us. He had a human mind, a human soul, a human body. He was tempted in every way, just like you and me, and yet without sin. And so we have this advocate that can relate to us. And that is so important. Because I guarantee you that some of us have done things that we still carry guilt for. We, in our own humanity... How much more the guilt against the holy God? And you can't move that. I can't move that. It required God to take on frailty and to be born into this milieu, this context, humanity, to redeem his image in man. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners and enemies of God and dead in our sins and our trespasses. Dead things cannot make any movement. Dead things just lay there and rot. And that is what the condition of the human soul and mind is prior to Christ. This is why this is so important. And God did not compromise himself, but rather he provided what was needed. Uh, Then what becomes of our boasting in verse 27? It is excluded by what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. If you read that construction there, or that it, some commentators say it's just uh, uh, the way Paul writes. It's a stylistic variant. But I, I think that when I read that in the text, the two different prepositions, I think that when I read it, what I'm seeing is that God will justify by his faithfulness and through his faithfulness. 
his faithfulness to keep his people in the Old Testament covenant, to bring them until the revelation of Christ, and the faithfulness of Christ on the cross of cross that brings us into the kingdom of God. I think that the whole point of that construction is the faithfulness of God. And so, so look at what he says then. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What is he saying there? That Christ obeyed perfectly. Christ provided what you and I cannot provide. And Christ continues to provide for us what we cannot provide. You and I cannot stand before a holy God in our own strength. You and I cannot stand before a holy God in our own righteousness. You and I cannot stand before a holy God, period, apart from being in Christ. And so I wanted to bring that to the forefront because I want us to be clear that what we're going to be talking about, this idea of sanctification, is not the idea of us earning something from God, but rather it is the idea of us being conformed by God and through our actions and through our living into Christ's image. And if you're ready, please, as is our custom, stand as we read these verses. And if you cannot stand, that's okay. We will read uh, chapter 6, verses 15 through, uh, thir- through 23, and then we will pray, and then we will walk through these verses and get uh, to the meat of the matter. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, Trinity in unity and unity in Trinity. We come before you as your people. I come before you, Lord, as one who recognizes my limitations and speaking and just communicating clearly. 
but you have ordained this moment to exalt yourself in our lives and in our minds through your word and by your spirit. And so we trust that you will glorify yourself in the preaching this morning. We trust that these words of yours will not be void or vain in our lives. And we ask, Lord, that you would root out our sins, our sins of pride, our sins of lust, our sins of anger, our sins of rebellion against you and hatred toward our brothers and sisters. I pray, God, that you would lead us in the killing of sin so that sin will not be killing us. I pray, God, that you would sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. And I pray, God, that whatever is not pleasing in your sight, that it would not be pleasing in our sight. And that in all things, you would continue to conform us to the image of Christ as we strive to be conformed into his image. I ask all these things in your name, Lord Jesus, by your spirit, for your glory, Father. And all of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. This is Paul's letter to the Romans to me is probably, and not just to me, it is to many, the, the great work, the theologically, doctrinally inspired letter that just cuts us to the quick. Paul does not compromise in this letter. He proclaims a glorious, magnificent, sovereign God. He does not compromise in painting the picture of a desperate, idolatrous humanity. And the love of God is proclaimed so beautifully in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in his intervening into human history to save those that were weak and dead and haters of him to come to die for those who were dead so that they may live through his death. And it is a beautiful, beautiful letter. And so, but I want to work through this text. Paul has just previously talked about our union with Christ. If we had died with Christ, we live with Christ. He has talked about the importance of being slaves of righteousness. And he's using these words that are uncomfortable for us, but we, we really need to step back and understand the image that he is painting here. When we say that we are slaves of righteousness, what does that really mean? It means that you have no desire, no will to do anything else other than the will of your master. It means that your life 
your purpose, everything is geared toward the will of your master. It is very difficult for us to be quite honest, to be dedicated like that. That is why I think two things that are really, really just becoming evidently more clear to me. One is the attack of the, on the natural family by culture, the destruction of the natural family by culture, the removal of fathers from the homes, the disempowering of families through TV shows that paint parents as naive and idiotic and irresponsible and elevates children to the role of parents. It is intentional. The laws that bind us as parents and what we teach our kids. School systems that are teaching and taking responsibility for our kids. It is the destruction of the family unit which is created by God. And now I want to switch this to a more pertinent issue for us now, today, in the context of what we live. And that is the destruction of the spiritual family in our churches. We no longer see church as family. But I want you to consider this. At the Lord's table, those Jewish men should have been at home leading Passover meals. But they were with Christ. Christ was redefining family. The church is the family of God. And we are to live as the family of God. We have many brothers and sisters, many mothers, many spiritual fathers. We have many sons and daughters, nieces and nephews. We are the church. And as the church, we are required to live in a certain way. As individuals, that profess Jesus Christ, we are to live in a certain way. Look at what Paul starts off there. What then? Should we sin? What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Are we to be a fancy word, antinomians, against law? If we are quite honest with ourselves, many of us live as antinomians. We say this, but we have areas in our lives where we do not, do not conform ourselves to what God commands. We have little secret places in our minds where we go, where people can't see. We think that it is Hidden, and yet the Word of God says the darkness is as light to Him. You have no place where God is not. You have nothing in your life that you can hide from Him. But we do. We live as though God cannot see. We live as though we have not been given a 
privilege to be conformed to the image of Christ. And this is where I want to talk to you about this idea of grace and the Christian life. Yes, God chose us, and that is unmerited favor. And yet, in that unmerited favor, in that new heart, God has given us this empowering grace. This ability for us to see what God requires of us and to desire to do that the ability that Adam lost at heart. Because in our culture, heart is this pitter-patter emotional thing. That's not what Paul is talking about. He is talking about 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man or woman be in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have gone, new things have come. You are obedient from your being, from who you are now in Christ. Our obedience is not burdensome. That is what John tells us in his letter. And we are to obey. God requires obedience. God requires us to live a certain way. It tells us in the Old Testament, I don't want sacrifice, I want obedience. Did you ever ask yourself why God says that? Because He provided the sacrifice. He provided what was needed to atone for our sins. He provided what He required. And what is required of us is what Adam was expected to have, and that is obedience to God, dedication to God. And that becomes very problematic for us because we have so many things competing for us. We have Twitter feeds. We have Facebook. We have Snapchat. We have Signal. We have messenger we have message we have tv we have podcasts we have audiobooks we have and the list goes on and on everything is taking just a little bit of your time not a whole lot but you know how you go into the poor house right is one mcdonald's meal at a time especially when you have a bigger family. Well, it's more convenient. And next thing you know, 20, 40. And then you look at how much you spent in the month. Oh my, 50% of our went to junk food. A little bit at a time. And I'm not saying those things are not necessary at times. And I'm not saying that they're not good at, for their, what they're intended for. But I am saying this. What are you slaving for? And why are you slaving for it? Paul moves on and he says, Hey, but thanks be to God, you who are once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of the teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Having been set free from sin. That is this participial idea of being set free and continuing in that freedom. Proverbs says a dog returns to his vomit. And we all go, ew, oh, that's so gross. But isn't that how we live our lives? If we're quite honest. 
we just keep going back to that big old pile of sin that we had. And maybe we're not sinning as bad as we were before. Now we become very critical and, and, and exalt ourselves in the degree of our sinfulness. I'm not as sinful as I was before. And isn't it sad that when we recount our sinfulness to other brothers and sisters, we recount it sometimes with a sense of joy and glee? No shame. No embarrassment. We're all guilty of it. Almost a pining for Egypt, as it were. Remember when we, and we got so blind, and we, uh, but now I'm a Christian and I don't do that. But you're longing for it. Paul makes a step back here. He says, you've been made free. Live in your freedom. It's so funny that we live in a nation that values freedom and we as Christians don't appreciate the freedom that we have in Christ. I did not know how to love until I realized that God loved me. I did not know how bad my choices were until I realized what the penalty was. And how can I keep going back to that well? Why do I keep going back to that well? Thank God for repentance. Thank God for the completed work of my sanctification in Christ. And yet, I need to be diligent in pursuing sanctification. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. It's the only thing we understand. Human terms. Look at verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what the fruit, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. And its end is eternal life. Do you see what Paul has done there? He has juxtaposed life and death. Isn't that what Moses, the message that Moses brought forth to the people of Israel before they took the land? He goes, I set before you life and death. Paul sets before them life and death. He sets before us life and death. Sin leads to death Righteousness leads to life. Life and death. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And notice eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice the anointed one, the Savior, God, our God, our Lord. I want to talk about this here briefly, about what it is that is the biggest hindrance to sanctification. And what I believe the biggest hindrance to sanctification is, we know a lot about God, but we don't know our God. We know a lot of things about God. 
If I were to ask you guys, you would say, he's all poor. If, if you know your vocabulary and this and about 10 bucks will get you a cup of coffee and a bagel, you'll say, oh, he's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. You'll say he has aseity. He's uncreated. You'll say he's inter- eternal and infinite. You will say he is the creator and we are the creature. We know a lot about God. You will say he is holy and righteous and just. But do you know your God? Do you know him? Do you know who he is and what he requires of you? Do you know your God? The Bible is replete with these things. Look, Jeremiah 9, 24, Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord, that he knows me and understands me, that he knows what I like, that he, that he does what I like, that she does what I like. I can look at a picture of my wife and she may be the most beautiful image on that and I can know things through that picture. I can say, oh, she's got blue eyes. Oh, she's got a beautiful face. Oh, she's got pretty hair. Oh, but that's not the same thing as knowing my wife. I know my wife. I live with my wife. I try to please my wife. I know what she likes, what she doesn't like. Such as, for instance, this morning inviting all you people to my house five minutes after I let her know I was going to do it. What do you think she did? You need to help me clean up whatever. Not that we don't want people in our house, but I'm saying, I know. I know that if I had sent that message out before I asked her, that would have been bad. What is bad? All life as I know it stops. <laughs> There's no getting over that. It's like walking on lava. You know, it's bad. It's gonna, you're going to get burnt. We all know that. But if I think it, and then I ask her, and she says it's okay, two thumbs up, we're good. I just have to do a little bit of help. Just got to do some stuff. And I'm thankful for those sisters in the church who could step up and help. And for the brothers of the church who are going to come. I'm thankful for the families who are coming. But what I'm getting at is I know my wife. I know what she values. I know what's important to her. I know what she doesn't like. And it's important to me. Do you know your God? Do you know your God? And if you know your God... Why would you disobey him when all his ways are truth? When all he has for you is the best desire for you and for your life. If you know your God, why do you provoke him to jealousy by raising up other gods? These 
things I delight in, love, justice, righteousness. And then Jeremiah says this, and this is the beauty about being a Christian. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. I want you to consider that. The Spirit of God in us leads us. As we are capable by what God has given us as far as mental capacity, intellect, physical ability, the challenges that he has ordained in our lives for our sanctification, but more importantly for his glory. He leads us, his word. It's so interesting when I hear these songs, I I just hear the words of God just coming forth and they remind me of the words that I have read and they encourage me and sometimes they cut me to the quick. But still, do we know God? Notice what he says here about the knowledge of himself. Notice what he says here in Hosea 4, 6, which I think is not only prophetic, but speaks to us today in the church. Notice what he says. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. How many of us come to church to be entertained? Why did you come here today? Did you come to feel better about yourself? Saying, hey, I came to church. I checked the Christian block. I'm good. I'm better than that guy. Did you come to church so that you could socialize? Did you come to church because, well, it's something that I'm made to do? Or did you come to church to have an encounter with the living God? And to be healed with the bomb of Gilead. And to contemplate your God. And to ask yourself really hard questions. Do I know my God? And if I know my God, why am I doing this, this, and this? Why, if I truly know my God, why am I doing these things that I know displease Him? Why did you come to church? You're here because God brought you here. What did Jesus say? Did you come out to the wilderness to see a well-dressed guy with some nice smooth hands? No, you came out there to see a, a man in camel skins, eating locusts and honey, but speaking the word of God. That is what is, I think, one of the saddest things behind our pulpits is we are no longer speaking the word of God, but we are speaking the religion of whatever the moment is. And the flavor of the moment now is wokeness where you have to make up what is lacking in Christ. And that does not exist. There is nothing lacking in Christ. You are redeemed in Christ. You are justified through Christ. You have a right standing with God, and we have a right standing with one another. So this is what God desires in sanctification, and I want to close it here. This is what God desires Hosea 6.6, Jesus paraphrased it in the greatest commandments, for I desire steadfast love. God desires 
chesed, this loving kindness, this steadfast love that, that is burning in us like a coal that warms us up when maybe we are bereft or grieving or maybe in our poverty, but should warm us up even in our prosperity. That is what God desires. He desires that steadfast love and not sacrifice. You and I cannot provide a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. The only sacrifice that was ever pleasing to God was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And apart from him, there is nothing else. And look, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Our God is a personal God. And he desires our love. And he desires that we know him. I did not marry a picture of my wife. I married my wife. Are you serving a picture of your God? Or are you serving God? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this text. I thank you, Lord, that your word does tell us how we can live as your people. But that is built upon us knowing and understanding you. It is not just actions that you require from us. It is much deeper than that. You have given us grace and saving us, and you empower us in grace to be pleasing to you. And so, Lord, I ask and I pray that we would learn to live in that grace and that we would live our lives in such a way that you would glorify yourself and that the image that you have given us would just be polished until we are blinded by your beauty. And that those that are outside of our family would be attracted to you. And so, Lord, thank you for your grace and thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.